to see you kind of this morning once again. Let me tell you about two things coming up that you can be involved in for your encouragement <clears throat> and your growth. Uh, the first one is this Thursday night, uh, God's Wisdom for Dating. If you uh, want to know God's wisdom for dating for yourself or to be a help, a wise friend and counsel to others, then this will be a great event hosted by our friends at Moore College and the Priscilla and Aquila Centre there. They always do great work and we're very thankful for them. And so you can come along to that, contact Jocelyn, 7pm this Thursday night, with a, a Monday following discussion of All Saints people working through some of the, the questions and the thoughts from that night. Uh, the second thing is that next, in two Wednesdays time, which is the 22nd of September, we're going to be gathering together online once again with our broader fellowship of churches here in Sydney, other Anglican churches around our city, for a night of prayer, depending upon God and lifting our voices to Him together. We'll hear from our Archbishop, Kanishka Rafal. Well, we'll hear from various churches around the diocese sing and pray in response uh, to God's Word for our city and beyond. It'll be a great encouragement, I think, so uh, I do encourage you to come uh, to connect with that event and uh, lift your voice uh, with your voice to, uh, with the voices of your brothers and sisters in Christ around our city. All right, let's pray as we come to God's Word. Our Father, we do thank you so much for your Word and for these moments that we have together in this way to think about it this morning. We ask that you'd be with us by your Spirit, uh, that these wouldn't be just words that we hear, uh, but that we would hear it, receive it, and build our lives upon it as we trust and follow the Lord Jesus. We ask this for his sake. Amen. Uh, well, no doubt you've uh, noticed, as I have, that uh, yesterday marked 20 years since September 11, 2001, and the terrorist attacks on New York and Washington, and that thwarted attack that saw brave men and women bring down United Flight 93 in the field of Pennsylvania. Uh, amid the many remarkable and terrifying stories of that day, one struck me during the week uh, on an interview for our own ABC, Australian economist Hans Kuhnen was one of 500,000 people on that day who were evacuated from Manhattan Island by boat in the nine hours that followed that uh, terrorist attack on the World Trade Centre site. Um, his story is one worth listening to um, and it's a story that is um, a, a lovely story of Christian hospitality in the midst of that devastating uh, circumstance, but it's also a story of being confronted with his own mortality as he sat in the ferry terminal for the Staten Island Ferry, uh, he says that he thought that day would be his last in this world. Being confronted with your own mortality is a clarifying experience. It's helpful to focus your hope and what to invest in, what to cling to in this world. It's a helpful thing to be confronted by your own mortality. It's meant to be a regular experience for people. 
but we're good, I think, at being too distracted to think about it or deliberately avoiding such realities. Uh, In an Anglican funeral service, we say in the very beginning of that service that one of the purposes of a funeral is for you to be confronted by your own mortality. The words we say is that we are here to recall the certainty of our own coming death and judgment. That's a purpose of a funeral service. I think in recent years, with the shifting of balance of focus of a funeral to be on the eulogising of a loved one, which is a good thing to do, more so than hearing the hope of the gospel and comfort from God's word, we've missed some of that purpose in funeral services. The purpose for the living who are there to grieve the loss of a loved one is to be confronted by their own mortality. The Bible says in Psalm 90, the Bible asks in Psalm 90 that God would teach us to number our days, that we might gain a heart of wisdom. And in the context of that Psalm, it's in the context of God's judgment and His justice and His sovereignty and His salvation that we want to then ask this God, the God who rules over all things, who is perfectly just, and the God who saves, to teach us to number our days in this world that we might gain a heart of wisdom. To know that our lives are not forever in this world. And the kind of wisdom that comes from that ought to be seen in, how we, in what we cling to what is most important in our lives and what we invest in as what is most sure and and fixed. As we fix our hope on on what God, the Creator, the Redeemer, the Judge of the world says that we should fix our hope on, namely His eternal purposes that go far beyond the number of days that He grants us in this life. Teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. We're heading towards the end of Abraham's journey to life, which is the journey of faith. And here, as he gets close to his death, we see him confronted with his own mortality. And while it might appear on first glance that his response to to seeing his own mortality is simply like many of our responses would be, kind of start to tick off the bucket list of pursuits, buying property, marrying off his son. I think actually chapters 23 and 24 of Genesis do point us towards the faith and the hope that comes from a heart of wisdom of a person who has numbered their days. Here is the summary It's a long section of Bible, chapters 23 and 24. This is the best I've come up with as a summary. I hope it's helpful. You'll see it on the screen. This is what I want us to see, that Abraham is looking for the heavenly city even as he entrusts the next generation to the faithful kindness of God. Abraham's looking for the heavenly city even as he entrusts the next generation to the faithful kindness of God. He's looking for the heavenly city in chapter 
23. Pick it up there with me, chapter 23, verse 1. Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. Then Abraham rose from his, the bedside of his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I am a foreigner and stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. So you notice that we've once again moved a few decades along in the story. In terms of Isaac, the child of promise, we see him arrive as an infant in chapter 21. We see him walk up the mountain of sacrifice and testing as a teenager in chapter 22. And now we have Isaac, a man in his mid-30s, in chapters 23 and 24. And so when Sarah dies here in verse 2 of chapter 23... Abraham does the right and proper thing of mourning and weeping over her loss. But he grieves as someone who has hope, as any believer does. And he grieves as someone with hope, not because of the legacy of his loved one, but because of his faith in the one who raises the dead and keeps his promises to his people. And so Abraham then, in his grief, goes to great effort and therefore great expense to secure a burial plot in Hebron, in the land of Canaan, smack bang in the middle of the land of promise. Abraham and Sarah, in their life together, staked everything on God keeping his promises, that he would do what he said he was going to do, that he would provide the promised land for their family and the nation and generations who would follow them. And it is now clear to Abraham that this promise, while still true, would not be fulfilled in his lifetime or Sarah's lifetime. Obviously, because at the time of Sarah's death, as Abraham says in verse 4, he is still a foreigner He is still a stranger in the promised land with no claim to it whatsoever except by the promise of God. And so in verses 5 to 16 of of chapter 23, we see this negotiation play out, which is an intriguing thing to read. You should do that later on. It's full of empty words and inflated prices and gamesmanship and unspoken risk It is basically the same as every property auction that's ever happened, ever, right? The Hittites talk up their huge respect for Abraham, which might be true and might be good, but may also just be flattery used to manipulate him. They don't want to hand over any of their property to Abraham. And so they offer him the free use of their land. We'll let you take your pick. Use our burial plots. Be our guest, please. But even in that generous offer, what they're wanting to do is actually hold on to the ownership of the land. No, 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 says Abraham. I want to buy it. The cave at Machpelah, verse 9, I want to buy it at full price. But the negotiation continues. You won't be our guest, okay, they say, receive our gift of the cave. I'll give it to you, Ephron, the Hittite says in verse 11. 
I couldn't take your money, my friend. Please take my gift, which sounds lovely. And like Abraham is having an impact on the nations that he's gained their respect, he's now receiving their gifts. So take it, Abraham. Don't be rude. But you see, the Hittites are still trying to hold on to their land. If they give the land away, then future generations can simply say of that land, no, it was never owned by you, it's always been owned by us, we're going to take it back. So Abraham is insistent, he's crystal clear, I've got to buy this land, I need to own this land, and I need to do it in a way that is above reproach. So it's clear for everyone and for all the generations to come that this is now my land. And so Abraham insists with great care, with great respect, he insists that he pay full price and Ephron the Hittite, as he continues to play hardball, as he pretends to refuse to sell the land, happens to mention in chapter 23 verse 15, what does he happen to mention? I couldn't possibly take you know, 400 shekels of silver off you for this land. Now, I know, because I've been doing year three learning from home, um, and one of the many episodes of Behind the News that we watched this week, that this is a term of weight, because that's how they used to have money. It was about weight and how much it weighed. So, here's about five kilos of silver that Ephron the Hittite says is, is what this little cave in a field is worth, which, in case you're not up on your shekels and weights of silver, is a massive amount of money, a ridiculously overpriced plot of land. Ephron's if like, you want this, Abraham, you're going to have to pony up something chronic. And Abraham ends up paying the same amount of money as what the whole precinct of the temple would be built on later in the Bible story. But he doesn't care, he pays it. He wants everyone to know that no deal was done here, he, know, he owes nothing to the Hittites, there's no gift, no discount. Why? Why does he care so much about that? Is it just that like so many who have lost a cherished loved one, that he wanted to enshrine Sarah's memory in a very permanent and special way? Is he wanting to mark the end of an excellent life? Is he throwing in the towel and saying, oh well, our time's done, I don't need this money, here's as good a place as any for me to retire? Is he trying to cling to the things of this world? No. This is not an investment in Sarah's memory. This is an investment in God's promises. Smack bang in the middle of the promised land, Abraham now owns a burial cave. And it was to be from that moment a perpetual marker that without knowing all the workings and without seeing all the fulfilment, their family is still all in with God's promises. And this is the place from which this family nation would grow and this is the place from which God's global blessing would be advanced. Even if all that, all that happens after Abraham dies, 
It's Abraham saying, I know we'll die here, just as I've buried Sarah here. But even in death, we are all in with what God is doing and with what God has promised. That's the posture of faith, isn't it? That says even up to and beyond the point of death, I am all in with God and what he is doing and what he has promised. You know that uh, cave in Hebron is still there today? You can go visit it. This is what it looks like today. Surrounded by conflict in Palestine. Protected with bulletproof glass. People still look to it as a place of God's promises. And the uncertainty of an unknown future. But here's the great comfort for those who believe in the Lord Jesus. We don't need to look to the cave in Hebron as a marker of God's promises, longing for a day when he would restore that place. Because we know that Jesus has been raised from the dead. We have even greater reason to grieve as people with hope to say that we're all in with God even beyond the point of death with what he has said and what he is doing. We have even greater reason for hope and faith in God's promises because we have seen Jesus raised from the dead, having defeated death for us and now prepares for us a perfect future for us to enjoy with him forever. Once again, we look to Hebrews chapter 11 as a great commentary on this part of the Bible. And this is what Hebrews chapter 11 says about Abraham and Sarah. You might be able to read it on the screen. Hebrews 11 verse 13. All these people, the writer says, were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, but he has prepared a city for them. Even at the point of death, Abraham and Sarah, by faith, say we're all in with what God is doing and what God has promised. And marking that place in the land is an act of faith of them saying we're looking forward to that heavenly city, that perfect future that God will provide. Is that what your bucket list communicates? Are the things that you're clinging to in this world pointers to the fact that you're not clinging to the things of this world? That you're looking forward in faith to the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, the perfect future of Jesus' eternal kingdom? 
our friend Peter Orr, who will finish this series for us next week, was interviewed last week in the Belfast Telegraph. Uh, back home for him. Uh, it's a lovely interview that you should read. And uh, one of the questions that was asked of him is, what will be on your headstone when you die? And not that we need to hold Pete to this, but Pete said, here is a forgiven sinner who is looking forward to the resurrection. It doesn't say that his family didn't matter or that his job didn't matter, or that there weren't things in this life that he didn't enjoy. All of that's true. But the direction of his faith and his hope in God's promises and what has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus means that in the end, what does he hold on to? The hope of the resurrection. Abraham is looking forward to the heavenly city even as he entrusts the next generation to the faithful kindness of God. That's chapter 24. And so with the death of Sarah and his own mortality clearly in view, Abraham Abraham has shown that he's still all in. He's still all in for God's promises of plentiful people who would be God's treasured possession. He's in for God's permanent place and God's plentiful people who will be God's treasured possession forever. And so, again, that promise has its fulfilment beyond Abraham's life. Just like the land, he then seeks to entrust Isaac and the next generation to the faithful kindness of God. Pick it up with me at chapter 24, verse 1. Abraham's now very old, don't even need to say the numbers. And the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. Now, Yes, the hand under the thigh, oath-swearing thing, that's even more awkward than it sounds in our Bibles. Uh, Abraham is pointing to the sign of the covenant given in chapter 17 that is connected to the promise of people, right? It's an oath that's centred on his circumcision and the seed that would come uh, in his uh, son Isaac and the, the, the generations to come after him. And so he then sends his servant to find a wife for Isaac in order that God's family nation might continue to grow and God's blessing advance in the world. But it's really important, Abraham says, that this wife for Isaac comes from Abraham's people, that their family remains distinct and set apart for God. And so the servant's long-winded prayer as he sets out on a long journey of some months is very specific in how he will know that the Lord is in it. With the details of a location, of a well, the kindness demonstrated by this prospective bride and her family as evidence of God's kindness on display. And while that uh, servant's prayer and his 
kind of laying out of the details before God is not a prescriptive method that the Bible gives us for us to find a spouse and is not a prescriptive method of praying for specific circumstances. It is an example of praying very specifically for things and entrusting them to the sovereign care of God. And it is a good example of seeking a person to be married to who seeks to live in response to the kindness and love of God, seen in how they show kindness and love to other people. And anyway, after the prayer and a long journey of all the waterholes and all the places and all the days and all the people who have come out, who could have come out to serve him and show kindness to him, it is Rebecca. And she gives him a drink. And he waits to see, as he sees this beautiful woman showing kindness to him, will all the details fall into place? Is this the one? Is the Lord in it? Well, pick it up with me at verse 19 of chapter 24. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for, for your camels too until they've had enough to drink. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw more water and drew enough for all his camels. So the, you know, the eggheads do the maths and work out that's about 80 to 100 trips that she did. Crazy. Without saying a word, <laughs> awkward, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. And when the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring weighing a becker and told, and two gold bracelets weighing ten shekels, expensive. Then he asked, whose daughter are you? Please tell me if there's room in your father's house for us to spend the night. She answered him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the son that Milcah bore to Nahor. And she added, we have plenty of straw and fodder as well as room for you to spend the night. And he bowed down and worshipped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. This beautiful, hard-working woman, who's attractive, and who's available and is from the right family for Abraham's nation family to move forward. The right person at the right time with the right character from the right family. The Lord is in it and his sovereign purposes are being achieved. The servant goes with Rebecca to her family house and then what happens is we have the whole story told over again, which makes this the longest chapter in Genesis. He lays out all the details again to her family. Why does he do that? Well, because as he has seen, and as we have seen, he wants them to see that it's all of God's sovereign providence and kindness 
This isn't a coincidental meeting that can be attributed to dumb luck. It is the providential ruling of God as he so orders his world and is at work for the good of those who love and follow him. And Rebecca's family see it. The Lord is in this. We're being swept up into God's promises and his purposes. And so then, chapter 24, verse 59, they sent their sister Rebecca on her way, along with her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men, and they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you increase to thousands upon thousands. May your offspring possess the cities of their enemies. It's a very Abraham-sounding blessing, isn't it? Then Rebekah and her attendants got ready and they mounted the camels and they went back with the man. A servant took Rebekah and left. Now Isaac had come from Beer Lahoi Roy, for he was living in the Negev. He went out to the field one evening to meditate. As he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Rebekah also looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, who is that man in the field coming to meet us? He is my master, the servant answered. So she took the veil and covered herself, preparing for marriage. And the servant told Isaac all he had done. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother Sarah and he married Rebekah. And so she became his wife and he loved her. It's the first reference to marital love in the Bible. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. What we have here are the promises extended to Abraham going far beyond his own life and his generation. Abraham has seen God keep his promise, but the fullness of those promises are off in the distance. We see the next generation entrusted with God's kindness and his faithful love. And friends, I wonder if that's an example for us, a reminder that things don't terminate with our generation, with us, with what we have and what we're believing, but we need to keep holding out the word of life and keep passing on the kindness and faithful love of God to the next generation, knowing that God's promises keep progressing as we long for that day that Colin talked about when all things would be brought under the headship of the Lord Jesus. Abraham is looking for that heavenly city, even as he entrusts the next generation to the faithful kindness of God. So what does this do for us? Well, I wonder if this episode helps us to confront our own mortality knowing that we too are outwardly fading away. As we live with daily case numbers and deaths in a global pandemic, as we remember terror attacks, as we look at current crises and wars and rumours of wars, as we're reminded of the fragility of life, may God teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom 
and that we might live and die in a way that shows that we are all in for God's promises and His purposes in the world and the promise of life and hope in Jesus who is risen from the grave and has a certain and eternal future for those who belong to Him by faith. And so we keep looking for the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem where there's no more death and pain and tears and we cling to that promise in hope and faith knowing that the joy and the kindness and the faithful love of God will fill and satisfy us forever. The Bible finishes in this way, then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him both great and small. And I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. The angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Amen.